Hey everyone, this is Victor from Cyborg for Life. Today I have a very special interview for you. She is the head of bone and joint infection and world expert in limb lengthening at the Rubin Institute for Advanced Orthopedics at Sinai Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. Please enjoy the interview with my doctor, Dr. Janet Conway. All right, everyone, today we have a very special guest joining us. She is a world leader in limb lengthening and head of bone and joint infection at the Rubin Institute for Advanced Orthopedics at Sinai Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. With an innovative expertise that has saved bones and lengthened numerous limbs, explains why patients are choosing her to help them get taller and reach new heights. Please join me in welcoming world-renowned orthopedic surgeon, my doctor, and queen of women herself, Dr. Janet Conway. Hey, Dr. Conway, how are you? Good. Hi, Victor. Oh, my God, so, Dr. Conway. Thank you for that nice introduction. <laughs> nice introduction. You deserve way, way more. That's the least I can do. <laughs> so um, before I begin, I just want to you know, publicly thank you for what you do. Um, when I was planning to get limb lengthening surgery done eight years ago, I was completely nervous and I didn't know a lot about the procedure. But after meeting you and you explaining it to me, it just, you know, I felt my ner nerves were at ease and uh, I felt reassured and I was ready to, actually a little excited to get it done, as weird as that sounds. Um, and ever since getting it done, it's changed my life. I'm living life to the fullest. So, uh, and I'm going to try to keep helping people um, do the same. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> She's acting like it's a piece of cake, but all right. So your qualifications and accomplishments are top notch. You earned your medical degree from Georgetown University, residency at Thomas Jefferson, and fellowship subspecialty training in limb lengthening and deformity reconstruction with Dr. John Hertzenberg and Dr. George Paley, and then coming to the International, of Cent uh, International Center of Limb Lengthening at Sinai Hospital in 2001. With over 20 years of experience and an amazing track record of success, it shows why patients from over 60 countries come to you for their limb lengthening goals to achieve the best possible result. So to give us some context, what kind of got you into limb lengthening? Like, what kind of drew your interest to that subspecialty? Well, um, it was kind of a funny thing, but um, when I was a fourth year resident, I went to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons meeting. Mm -hmm. And... So I always liked trauma, and so I went to one talk on tubule non-unions, and it was by a guy named David Lowenberg, and I consider him one of my mentors. And so he gave an amazing talk about how these patients had a ton of operations, and they still had non-unions, and he had fixed their deformity and their limb length discrepancy and got their non-unions to heal with the Elizaroff device. And I was like, you know, and he showed videos of patients walking and they had one. And I was like, this guy is the man. I'm like, I have to, I got to learn this. This right. is amazing technology. Right. I'm like, people are going to him saying that, you know, they should get their legs cut off. And he's like, wait, wait, I got it. And so after seeing him give this lecture, I was like, I, you know, then I started researching, like, where can I learn how to do this? Mm -hmm. And it was good timing because you apply for your fellowships in your fourth year of uh, residency. Mm -hmm. And so I had, um, because my husband was doing, uh, you know, medical school and his PhD, mm -hmm. I had about two years where I wanted to do some fellowships. So I did trauma fellowship. And then right in the middle of my trauma fellowship, I did the limb lengthening and deformity correction fellowship with um, Roar and John. Mm -hmm. And it was great because, you know, it was just everything I ever wanted to learn about taking care of these complex patients and, you know, saving people's legs. And, you know, this limb lengthening technology has just evolved over the course of, you know, 
since I started, I mean, before it used to be all these uh, loser off wires and circular external fixators, and then the precise nail came along, and it was such a game changer for everyone. Uh, you know, um, the first couple versions were these nails where you had to rotate the patient's leg. Mm -hmm. It was called the ISKD, and it was, uh, you probably heard of that, but the first generation of nail um, uh, lengthening nails, it was really painful. And so when this magnetic lengthening nail came out, uh, the precise nail, it was just phenomenal because the patients could do it themselves. It wasn't painful and uh, really uh, changed everything. It's really so fun to see all the te technology evolve. Yeah, you know? yeah, completely. And that's actually one of the reasons why I decided to get it done. We, we said, you know, I, I thought it was the Elizabeth that I would have to get the Taylor spatial frame or something. You're like, no, we have this new technology. And I was like, really? And you explained it to me. I was like, Let's do it. So that's yeah. super cool. Um, awesome. So yeah, you're, you're well-versed in multiple orthopedic disciplines from uh, bone and joint infection, deformity reconstruction, to fixing limb length discrepancies, um, the list goes on. But today I want to focus on the stature lengthening as it's becoming more and more popular, as you, can, you probably know, uh, for increasing one's height. So um, when, when pr prospective patients reach out to you, uh, one of their main concerns is trying to get as tall as possible. Um, you know, and they go to the surgeon and they say, hey, look, this is my goal. I want to achieve this. Um, but the most important thing for the surgeon to do is to do that safely. So how do you decide how much length a patient can get in each bone, like the femur or the tibia with these internal lengthening rods? Sure. Well, you know, some of these lengthening rods have inherent limitations. So, you know, eight centimeters is about what you can get mm. from a one go at the nail. Right. So... Um, you know, that in and of itself, like that stops the lengthening with, you know, one surgical procedure just from the eight centimeters. But uh, depending on the person's, uh, you know, initial height and depending on the length of their bone, you can, um, you know, lengthen uh, up to between 20 and 30% without complications. Once you start to get over 30% of the bone, initial bone length, you start to get into a tremendous amount of complications. And so uh, depending on like the width of the person's bone and depending on the length of the person's, you know, the initial length of the person's bone um, is really sort of determines how far you can go without a lot of complications. And then, so with that being said, a lot of people can usually get five centimeters without a horrible problem. Like that is like when people walk into my office, I can pretty much guarantee that they get two inches. That, that, pretty much like without uh, a big problem and without a lot of effort on their part, you know, five centimeters or two inches is pretty safe. And I would say, you know, 95% of people could walk out the exact same with five centimeters of the femurs. If you want to do the femurs, the tibias, depending on how short the person is and how long the patient's bone is, five centimeters could be a lot for those um, small, like like 4'10", you know, like 4'6", four, 4'7", four, four, like you're starting to get into that uh, overall percentage of lengthening that starts to get more complications, like with bone healing or muscle contractures. Mm. So uh, just depending like on the, but if, so if someone walks in with femurs and they want to get uh, five centimeters, I feel like that's pretty safe. Mm -hmm. When you're starting talking about tibias, it gets a little more dicey just because of the initial length of the bone. But, um, you know, uh, you just have to pay attention, I think. Right. Yeah. And um, a lot of people, they're willing to actually do both sets of bones. Do you uh, recommend, let's say, if they wanted to get six or more centimeters, that they 
split it up and like among the tibia and the femurs and separate the surgeries between a certain amount of time? Sure. I mean, I think if you want to, I think some people, you know, I even got a question the other day about they don't want to affect their athletic ability and they want to try to do both bones. And so, uh, I would say that it takes two years to really recover fully from a limb lengthening procedure. And so if people wanted to like, if their goal it depends on what their goals are, if they want to get as tall as possible, as quickly as possible, then you might want to separate it out by, you know, a shorter period of time. But if they want to maintain their functionality as you know, their athletic ability, I would say, do your femurs recover for two years and then come back and do your tibias. You know, and I think that would probably be as far as maintaining your, level of you know like say people like to run and they want to do marathons or whatever i would say don't do everything all at one time or don't separate them out by six months apart you know i would start to wait a lot longer for that i feel like that would be the safest way to go because at the end of the day my job with the stature lengthening is to have people walk out of the office the same way they walked in just taller and you know uh that's really important to me because you know, it, it's just, uh, it's something that it doesn't necessarily have to be done, right. you know? And so safety first. And you know, the nice thing too, about some of these things, and I you know I've had a lot of discussions with a lot of people mm-hmm. about the stature lengthening is that these precise nails, you can lengthen, say five centimeters, right? Mm-hmm. And then say the person wants to get taller later, but you know, uh, you still have that nail in there that has the eight centimeter capability. Mm-hmm. You could you can kind of wake up the sleeper nail, mm-hmm. so it's been healed, the nail's in there. You could still go back, cut the bone, and get three centimeters more. Do you wow. see what I mean? That's so. Cool. It's kind of fun. Yeah. It's a well, option. I didn't know that. <laughs> but a lot of times, like you know, say we've had a bunch of these cases where you know we've lengthened and then either a patient had a contracture or whatever, and we stopped and they healed and they got rid of their contracture and they still want a little bit more Mm -hmm. um, we can cut the bone and go back and the nails have been fully functional even after we've you know not lengthened for a year or two and so that's awesome because it just gives us the ability to make it safe to get you know you can stop and then go back and get the extra length later so i don't know it's kind of a a, another way to look at it you know without uh, going crazy, doing another whole set of bones and right. oh, being safe the first time, getting the five or six centimeters and then mm-hmm. waiting and then coming back. So yeah. I don't know. I always feel like, you know, that's my goal. Safety, like you said, safety first. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, um, like you said about the muscle contractions and stuff, that's another thing. Um, obviously, you want to monitor the patient's uh, bone formation, um, avoiding muscle contractions and whatnot. Does that regulation of lengthening rate does that play into how fast you should distract the bone um like typically the average i remember i think i did it with you close to about a millimeter per day um but depending on the person's age and stuff does does the distraction rate change um well i think it depends on a couple things usually like you said the standard is a millimeter a day and you can do like 0.3 three mm-hmm. times a day yeah. but uh it depends on how well the bone is healing mm-hmm. and so if like seeing nothing after the person's distracting, you can slow them down. Okay. The other dangerous thing is if the person is making too much bone, mm-hmm. then you don't want the nail to heal or the bone to heal before you've reached your goal. So right. sometimes 
speed it up a little bit, but like you mentioned, the muscle contractures, it's sort of a, a catch-22. You don't want to speed up the bone too fast and get these nerve or muscle issues. So you really have to be paying attention, and that's why it's so important to come back like every week or every other week to just check, yeah. you know? Um, and so that's another thing when you get to that, like, you know, it, 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 when you start out, it's not so bad because your muscles don't, aren't really, uh, you know, they're not stretching that much, a millimeter or two. When you start to get into the end ranges, like the five centimeters or six centimeters and even longer, mm -hmm. those muscles have had to grow all that length too. They're tight. Mm -hmm. And so you can slow the rate down as you get further along. One, because the bone is, you know, maybe not as robust as you're getting towards the end ranges of the lengthening. And you might have the luxury of slowing down. And two, you have to make sure that those muscles catch up with the bone healing. So maybe in the beginning, it's a millimeter a day. And then as you get further out, sometimes you slow it down 0.75 a day, maybe, you know, 0.5 every other day, just depending on uh, how the patients are doing. Right. Yeah, and that all goes back to like the checkups and stuff and, um, you know, being very close to your doctor and um, not, not traveling back and forth. But um, I mean, you, as a very experienced uh, specialist in bone and joint infections, um, non-unions, contraction, and whatnot, I mean, people are in super good hands if they go to you, but um, people still worry about com complications. I mean, I, I had nothing to worry about, but like, what, what, what advice do you give to a prospective patient who um, is in the process of selecting a surgeon um, and is worried about complications? Surely experience matters. I mean, you've been in a game for over 20 years, um, but also knowing how to troubleshoot along the way. Like you said, those checkups are super important. What type of um, signs and symptoms do you look for um, in a patient who's lengthening for that five centimeters or a little bit more? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think you asked two questions. The first one was about how to pick your surgeon. Yeah. You know. So let me just a couple things. Like, I think that I'm a fan of the stature lengthening mm -hmm. in uh, with surgeons who are experienced in limb lengthening. Mm -hmm. So, like if someone just does cosmetic stature lengthening as like, you know, if that's all they do, then they have a lot of experience, but if they kind of dabble in it a little bit and don't really do like a lot of other limb lengthening procedures, mm -hmm. I feel like they might not know as much as far as, uh, you know, handling the um, complications. Right. So, you know, I think experience really matters. Um, so if they've done training in limb lengthening, they've had a fellowship, they, you know, have been doing it for a while, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you don't want to go with someone who's uh, maybe in their first year to a practice and this is something that they're just starting to get into or they want to just take advantage of the new technology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the funny thing when the precise nail came out is when all this, uh, you know, started coming about, everyone was like, oh, my gosh, it's going to be such a problem because everyone can put a rod in. Everyone knows how to put a rod in. All the trauma surgeons know how to put a rod in. This is going to take off. And so that was like the company's worry. That was like a lot of like the experienced limb lengthener's worry. Mm -hmm. But because it requires such a close follow-up and because it requires such a knowledge of what can happen as you're lengthening the bone, yeah. I think it hasn't been as um, – like, you know, the, the worry is not there so much that patients, like the doctors are just, you know, making everyone taller because the technology is available. Right. Um, I think people who are doing it, uh, I think 
do it with the respect that they have for the bone and soft tissues, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like if you go to someone, they just have to have that experience, like the limb lengthening. This is not just the only thing they do in the limb lengthening arena. They, uh, you know, you want someone who's like my limb lengthening colleagues have had a lot of experience, you know? Yeah. So I, I just feel like that's important. And so then you're asking me, the other question was, what things do I look for? Yeah. You know, when, um, you know, someone's doing the limb lengthening. So mm-hmm. things I look for, like if you're, if you're uh, doing femoral lengthenings, mm-hmm. you want to make sure that they're stretching their hips. They're not getting hip contracture. You know, you want to make sure they can lay on their stomach. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure, like, as they're uh, coming into your office and doing uh, their physical therapy, they can bend their knees when they're laying on their stomach and stretch stretch their um, whole quad and the rectus muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also looking for some weakness or numbness or tingling in their foot mm-hmm. because that, you're start, they're starting to have trouble straightening their knees. You know, you want to stretch their hamstrings. You want to make sure that they're not getting any subtle signs of perineal nerve entrapment. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes even with the stature lengthenings, I'll do an IT bear release. And sometimes if I'm going for a lot, I might just do the perineal nerve decompression at the same time. Right. So that it's all done. And I don't have to stress so much mm-hmm. if they're getting symptoms. I don't want to go back in the middle of, lengthening and have to do a perineal nerve decompression because two everyone is sort of paying up front for the surgery and if you don't do it ahead of time it looks like a complication yeah you see what i mean and so half the issue with going to someone who's knowledgeable is troubleshooting before the trouble happens right and so if i kind of like release the it band and um maybe do a little botox you know quad or hamstring if i can do it and um do a little perineal nerve decompression right off the get-go for the femurs, Mm -hmm. then I feel like I've set myself up for keeping myself out of trouble. And so if I didn't do those things, then I really get worried about contractures and Mm -hmm. nerve symptoms. And I, I, you know, it's it's hard to talk someone into going back to the OR, especially when it's cash up front. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. Definitely. Because those complications, yeah, you definitely want to get those. Um, yeah, so Dr. Conway, a very common uh, concern among interested leg lengthening candidates is how long is it going to take them to recover from the surgery? Obviously, everybody has different rates, but what is the average time that you've seen for somebody who's undergoing femoral lengthening or tibial lengthening, um, like from surgery to maybe, let's say, starting to take um, walking without assistance, whether they got the stride nail or the precise nail? Because obviously, the precise nail is not as weight-bearing, um, can't handle as much weight load as a stride now. Um, mm-hmm. What's the typical time frame that you see for that turnaround? Sure. Well, I would say, you know, the it's, it's sort of an interesting thing because a lot of the typical patients who would see us are maybe in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a lot of times they'll come at the end of May okay. after the semester is over mm-hmm. and want to get something done as soon as possible so they can go back to school in August. Okay. And this is sort of like if you start at the end of May, you can get five to six centimeters and be walking at least with crutches by the end of August. And then maybe in September, uh, you know, walking without assistive devices. Wow. And so it's something they can get done, uh, sort of what they did on their summer break, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And like August is tight a little bit. if They want to walk with nothing. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of been with the precise nails, uh, mm-hmm 
nails, these stride nails are coming out. I think it might be a little bit easier to wait for a little bit quicker um, because uh, it's a little more robust to handle the load when the bone is still healing. Right. Um, so it might be quicker than that, but I would say that's a reasonable time frame. They start in the middle of May, you know, they're, you know, full weight bearing with crutches by the middle of August mm -hmm. and hopefully nothing by September. And so, uh, that would, I would say comfortably for five to six centimeters of lengthening. Okay. That's very cool. And I think that's similar to what I did. I did it, uh, well, July, but it was like that summer. And then by the early fall, I was, I was back up. Um, uh, what, what about a normal walking gait? Everybody's like, when they start walking, obviously there's going to probably be some stiffness and the abductor muscles and whatnot. When do you typically see your patients start to resume like a normal walking gait? Is that a little bit further down the line or is it all dependent on how aggressive they are with their physical therapy and whatnot? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, okay. I, uh, you know, people are generally recover at a little bit of variable rates, you know? And so, um, I would say that Say that person who got lengthened in May, you know, was walking with crutches by August, nothing in September. They could probably be comfortably going to the gym, uh, working out, you know, October, you know, starting to get on the anti-gravity treadmill in September, you know, full weight bearing by October, as far as like maybe getting some jogs in on the treadmill. Mm -hmm. And so um, as far as normal walking gait, it just really depends on like how quickly they're rehabbing. But the, the sort of what I would say is patients don't want anyone to know that they had anything done. Right. So like, say you, you know, see your friend in May before you have a surgery and then you see them back like in October, November, I think they wouldn't even know. <laughs> I feel like they, you know, if you were going out to dinner and you're walking or you went to walk on the boardwalk or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, now, if you say you went to the beach and you're walking on sand, it might be a little awkward. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But, like, I, I feel like as far as normal daily activities mm -hmm. and you're not wanting anyone to know, I feel like, you know, October, maybe middle of November, yeah. and say you wanted them to go for a, a little jog, say you wanted to go a little jog or bike riding with your friend, and, I mean, I think they'll be fine. I think that patients, families or friends or whatever wouldn't say, oh my gosh, you got taller, but it would be the same person. Do you know what I mean? Like they wouldn't be like uh, noticing any gait disturbances. So yeah. I feel like if they wanted to get like, say it was like a lacrosse player, I really feel like they wouldn't feel like they're they're 100% mm -hmm. uh, maybe for eight or nine months if they wanted to get back to their cutting, pivoting, like whatever. Mm -hmm. But for normal, like regular activities, like, you know, running, walking, I, you know, I'd say maybe between the six month mark is probably pretty good, yeah. you know, so May to October, I think, or November. Okay. That's a, that's, that's a really good time frame. A lot, of, a lot of people like to hear within the year and that's exactly what you're saying. And that's true. It's all, it's all a part of uh, how aggressive they are with their physical therapy, which is my next point. Um, it's a well-known fact that consistent physical therapy is a huge part of this um, in terms of a good turnout. I know firsthand that Simon has a wonderful physical therapy team. You are super crucial about it. Like, you've got to go to therapy. you got to go to therapy. And um, not slacking off because a lot of people, if they don't show up to their sessions, uh, they tend to get complacent. And then that complacency can lead to problems. Um, in fact, I remember you went out of your way and made me a molded cast to use, you know, at night to keep all kinds of things intact. In do, um, do you feel that, like, people who uh, aren't going to physical therapy or, like, international patients that come to Sinai, do you recommend that they stay 
on site for their lengthening phase, or do you think that it's okay that they go home um, and do physical therapy back at their place? Well, that I feel like is one of the keys to success for this treatment. Yeah. You have to be on top of it. And so uh, if you want to talk about complications, you know, ankle stiffness, knee stiffness, knee contractures. And so it's so crucial. And so if patients are from out of town or international, I, you know, make them stay for the lengthening procedure. Yeah. So the nice thing is we have a Hackerman Pat's house across the street. Mm -hmm. And so they have the option to stay. It right. gets a little tricky when patients don't, I always say, tell them they have to have a lengthening buddy. So if they want to come and, you know, get lengthening from us, they have to have someone that's going to be able to help them stay at the Hackman Pat's house and bring them to and from physical therapy and keep an eye on them uh, and help them because, you know, like, I guess there's some liability issues with patients staying by themselves and not having, like, proper help or whatever uh, because, you know, literally they've just had both their legs broken, you know. And so, you know what I mean? It's It's – it's a lot when patients ask, like, hey, how am I going to be ready after surgery? Well, you're going to need help. And so you're going to buddy, you know? And so that's why I uh, say as long as they um, have someone to stay with them at the Hackman Pat's house and they go across the street and they come to us for PT, you know, and honestly, as it gets more and more, uh, the length keeps going on and on, you know, sometimes it's three days a week, sometimes it's five days a week. And it's really important to keep up with that because that's how you prevent a lot of these problems. You know? And so it's just important for the ther therapy people to know all about the limb lengthening techniques. Like if they're not going to be able to stay with us or, um, you know, I've had some patients flying from Boston. And so um, like we'll have our PT department check up on them. Mm -hmm. men but also they're in communication with the patient therapist back in wherever they're coming from, because um, it's important to know certain techniques for protecting the knee when you're working on contractures and things like that. Maybe making them like you had a special cast or a brace to do it some nighttime splinting. And that's very custom. And so uh, it's just really important. I think people, you know, the surgery is critical, but the physical therapy afterwards, because it's a dynamic device, is even more critical. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think that you're 100% right with that. Um, me, myself, I, I, you, you told me how critical it was, and I did get stuff. I was a bodybuilder, so um, having some of that tight calf and stuff is preventing that. But you, you told the therapist, working, 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 and I ended up perfectly. So um, how, how important is it to be flexible before the surgery is it important to like have to like maybe start to if you know you're gonna get your surgery next year let's say next may from right now is it important to start working out and stretching now or is it like it's not super important it's all genetic what are your thoughts on that i tell people to start stretching so when i see them in the office i'm doing all preoperative examining and range of motion mm -hmm. and if they are tight i tell them they got to work on it I it's remember. important oh yeah i mean like i, I probably repeat myself victor right exactly <laughs> like god i've heard this before yeah. but like i do it all the time i tell people because you know what it's only going to get worse if you're tight now mm -hmm. it's going to get worse and uh and i feel like you know some people are um big like you're a big guy and yeah. so uh when you're working out so much sometimes you do get uh tight and your muscles are so big sometimes your range of motion isn't always like perfect you know so um uh I think it's really important to stretch ahead of time. Uh, Dr. Conway, pain is another big fear factor for a lot of patients. Um, 
but it's very individualistic. I mean, for me, uh, the first week or two was a little rough, it was a little shocker, but uh, it went down dramatically after that. Plus, I'm used to pain. But a lot of patients just can't fathom what breaking both legs are going to feel like. What do you tell a prospective patient to kind of expect or how to manage their pain? What's your best advice? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it uh, is expectations. And so you have to be in a psychologically good place, I think, when you're approaching this uh, uh, situation. You know, it's like anything. Uh, pain is weakness leaving the body. You know what I mean? You want to try to uh, – if you want it, you'll put the time and effort in to get through it. Right. And so uh, nothing that is worthwhile is not without some effort and hard work and sweat and things like that. And so – I feel like if they approach it with the attitude that I'm going to do this, I'm going to get through it. That's a much better place to come from than that. I don't want any pain. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. I don't want any pain. And so we do our best. Like we're, we do a lot of, uh, you know, anesthesia can do a lot of blocks. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that post-operative pain can be mitigated with like femoral nerve blocks or adductor blocks. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, uh, it's, helpful just for the immediate post-op we keep the patients in the hospital a couple days just to get rid of that initial post-op pain and then you know we have a lot of regimens as far as like valium we can give patients for spasms and we kind of get them on a, a regimen that every couple hours they can have something and the nice thing is like you said after you get over the hump yeah. of the initial surgery it's tolerable yeah. and then you know if they're diligent keeping up with the physical therapy they have some discomfort when they're stretching with the PT, but it's nothing crazy as long as they're kind of like staying on top of it, keeping up with it, and get on a regimen of like maybe they take, you know, their Valium before PT and then their uh, narcotic after therapy. You know, there's a way to get on it where you can manage it. Right. So I feel like, you know, patients, yes, there's going to be pain. Yes, the acute post-op pain we can manage and help in the hospital with IV pain medications, some of these blocks. But then once you get on like a, a regimen uh, that, you know, you get in a routine where, you know, you do your lengthening, you do your stretching, you do your physical therapy, you take the Valium, the oxycodone, they're sort of the things we use a lot. Right. Um, you know, you can, you can get through this and it's definitely doable. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think people should just maybe connect with some other patients like you mm -hmm. to let them know that once you're over the immediate hump, and that immediate hump is really when you're in the hospital under our direct supervision, right. then it's uh, definitely something that is, you know, manageable. Mm -hmm. And I would not tell patients that it's pain-free. I would tell them that it's definitely manageable. Right. You'll be able to get a good night's sleep. You'll be able to get around. You'll be able to do your activities of daily living. Mm -hmm. um, and you're not going to be sitting there uncomfortable 24-7, right. you know? Yep. I completely agree. That little hump, and then it's just, it's just a waiting game, essentially. So very cool. All right, Dr. Conway, so just a few more questions and then we'll wrap up. Um, what, obviously, a lot of patients, like you said, is all about the, the uh, physical activity, getting back to that. You said that it's going to be like six to nine months when they can get back to like the um, explosive movements and the cutting and stuff like that. But what about like jumping and like sprinting and like all that super high impact stuff? Because we have some people who are avid, you know, extreme athletes. Do you suggest that uh, they even get stature lengthening to begin with if they're at like top level uh, athletes or do you think that they can all achieve their functionality if they stay within a lengthening goal well i mean again it goes back to goals you know if their goal is to be like a world-class athlete mm -hmm. they should not touch their physique they right. shouldn't <laughs> you know what i'm saying yes. like 
if there are issues that need to be addressed, like, you know, limb length discrepancy or something or something that's preventing them from, you know, then they should address that because that's, you know, necessary. But to take someone who's functioning at such a high level, like an Olympic athlete, and then want to make them taller, I feel like you're taking a chance because with every surgery, there are risks, yeah. you know, and you have to outweigh the risks and benefits. So if the goal is for the person to be like a spectacular Olympic athlete, mm-hmm. well, then they probably shouldn't get surgery because if they're in their peak physical condition at that point, then you're taking a risk and there's not a lot of benefits because if you, that's your goal is to be an Olympic athlete. So if your goal, if that person's goal, maybe after they're done being an Olympic athlete, mm-hmm. you want to get taller, mm-hmm. well then they're not the, the risks maybe aren't as great as the benefits to that person to get taller. You see what I mean? Yep. And so I feel like then it becomes a, a good possibility because maybe they'll achieve 98% of their pre-lengthened status, but you know, as you know, those Olympic athletes are like the top 0.1%. Do you see what I mean? And so, you know, that's the only other thing is uh, it all comes down to what patients expect and want. And so I would counsel patients if they are very happy with their functional status mm-hmm. uh, and don't want to jeopardize that, that they may want to really carefully consider waiting until maybe that is not as big a priority for them and then all of a sudden the height becomes a little bit more important yeah. do you see what I mean? absolutely and i agree i think that you know you should wait till after your heyday essentially if and then achieve that goal your lengthening goal essentially um if that's the case um all right last two questions dr Conway, uh international center of lengthening at sinai is really unique because you guys have an awesome team there. I know Dr. Hertzenberg, Dr. Asayag, your um, mentee, you have Dr. Philip McClure, um, and yourself, the amazing queen of limb lengthening. Um, What are the benefits of being part of such a very experienced and well-rounded team? Do you guys consult with about different patients? Do you bounce ideas? Is it just like you have like a really team-centered focus on patient success? Is What's what's the benefits of working at an amazing uh, facility like that? Well, I, you know, I, it's from start to finish. So, like, when patients come in our clinic, you know, we have uh, all the tools even in our clinic for a lot of these things. We have a whole adjustment room full of spare parts for our frames and, you know, like it, it, that, you know, some wrenches, things like that. Like, we have all, just even in our clinic when people come in, we have our uh, stuff set up. And mm-hmm. if you went to somewhere else that doesn't do a lot of limb lengthening, I'm telling you right now, they're not going to have a spare room of parts, you know, to, for switching out, you know. So, and then uh, our clinic staff's experience with a lot of these things because sometimes patients have to come in on an emergency basis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they'll make a phone call. We'll bring them in right that day, the same day or a little bit later whenever they come in. So the clinic staff is uh, flexible and understands that these things are dynamic and changing and uh, they understand the importance of uh, patients coming in all the time. So that's helpful. And then, you know, the OR is great because they're used to all the equipment we use mm-hmm. and, the cases can get done more efficiently and effectively because they're used to all the tools and equipment we use upstairs. It's not such, cause it's not your standard stuff. Right. And so, um, it's it, that team in the OR is well oiled. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's not just like the other physicians. It's like the ancillary staff is great. The PT in the hospital is great. Like you said, the outpatient PT. So, uh, there are all the benefits of, you know, just being at our center is like, 
all the other ancillary staff is on the same page, working hard to achieve our results, you know, in the hospital and outside the hospital. And then um, as far as our colleagues are concerned, it's so nice because we have the volume to maintain all the good staff and, you know, it's not just me, it's myself and Herzenberg and Paley, Herzenberg and McClure and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Asiag mm-hmm. and everyone just working together and we all have the same protocols. Mm-hmm. So then it's really nice because everyone knows what to do. Mm-hmm. It's not one doctor's doing one thing, one doctor's doing another thing. And um, so, so it's just great being at a center that does a lot of high volume of this. And then sometimes you put the unusual case and it's so nice to chat with your colleagues about, Hey, what do you think about this? Or, Hey, I'm going away on vacation. Can you watch this guy for me? He's in the middle of like, you know, lengthening or whatever. Can you just keep an eye on him? Uh, whatever when I'm away. And it's so nice because, you know, they have your back, you know, and you can, um, just, you know, uh, bounce things off of them. So I really think it's important, um, having that, support for the surgeons and the patients and you know all the resources available i I really think it's nice it's a great place to work and um i really it's it's a privilege i wouldn't it would be hard working somewhere else because you'd be the lone ranger you know (laughs) i completely agree when i came there it was like everybody was bouncing ideas i was hertzenberg was there you were there i just felt so taken care of um that's why i recommend this and had to save this interview for last it's just amazing so uh dr conway me being your patient and number one fan um, I knew how to run and highlight you for the amazing surgeon you are. You changed my life for the better. Um, and so far, there are several people considering one like who I recommend you for, but they want to reach out and consult with you. Where is the best place and how can they reach out to you? Um, I'll be sure to post all your links in the, de- uh, the details, but what are your best uh, contacts? I'd say the best contact is my email, jconway at lifebridgehealth.org. I get all my email. I'll check a couple times a day. And so I usually am pretty good about getting back to everyone. And, uh, you know, even last night I'm getting emails from patients just sort of in the same vein with the mm-hmm. same topic and I'm trying to answer them back just because, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's on people's minds and, uh, you know, I'm happy to provide the information and, you know, it's something that people carefully consider before they go ahead and do it. And it's kind of nice if they have a relationship with the doctor before they even meet them, you know, they're sort of uh, realizing that, you know, I'm easily accessible. And that's the other thing is you want someone that's going to be around even after you've done your surgery. So like patients all have my cell phone number. Yeah. So I make sure that, you know, if they're having a problem or an issue or a question, they can text me, mm-hmm. you know, email great, but I always tell people to text me if they want me right away, if they're having a problem. And so that I feel like is also really critical. So, um, yeah, but that's the best way. Jconway at lifebridgehealth.org. And thanks that's, a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and I'll be sure to post all that in the links. Um, Dr. Conway, any final words that you'd like to kind of say uh, to any prospective patients who are considering uh, you for lemon Uh Sure. I would say, you know, stretch a lot, take vitamin D, and uh, just make a list of pros and cons, things you can't do, things you can't do. And, you know, uh, because it is, it's going to be a six months out of your life, you know, sort of endeavor and, um, you know, just decide, decide how important it is to you. And uh, I feel like that would just be really, you know, a critical thing to tell patients is, you know, is this worth spending six months working on and, uh, you know, pick the right person. Right. So uh, I feel like your success is directly determined by how hard you want to work, how important it is to you. And 
having the right surgeon and tools available to you to complete the task successfully. Absolutely. All right, everyone, that is Dr. Janet Conway of the Rubin Institute for Advanced Orthopedics at Sinai Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, in the United States. Uh, she is an amazing surgeon. Dr. Conway, thank you so much for your time. Victor, thanks a lot. It was so great seeing you. Thanks I really you. enjoyed your interview and um, uh, looking forward to watching some of your podcasts. Yeah, and by the way, she is super accessible. It's been eight years since my surgery, and I'm still talking to her, so thank you, Dr. Conway. Well, take care, Victor. Thanks again. All right, have a good one. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Conway. Not only is she very experienced and pays close attention to detail in limb lengthening and deformity reconstruction, but she's also very accessible, compassionate, and caring with all of her patients, which I can attest to. If you're interested in reaching out to Dr. Conway, all of her contact information can be found in the show notes. Until next time, this is Victor from Cyborg for Life, signing out.